I call your attention now to the Word of God found in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And we will meditate on the truth of our triune rescuer. Our triune rescuer. As you read the text with me, or listen to the reading of the text, try to make sense of the title with the text. How can you understand our triune rescuer as you read Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11? Let us pray. Let us read God's word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia. The people of Israel served Cushan Rishataim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rijataim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rijataim. So the land has had rest forty years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Our triune rescuer. Let us pray once again. Father, I pray for the children here, and I pray for the young people as well, and all of us. I pray that we can examine ourselves and examine our souls and examine our faith if it is true and genuine faith by the word of Christ. Please help us. And in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Sin. Sin has the ability to slave people. You know that by John chapter 8, verse 40, 34, that says this. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And in this morning, I want you to examine yourself. I think it's my proposal this morning for self-examination of your faith. If it's genuine, if it's true, if it's real. And you children should also pay attention and examine yourselves as well. Sin is a serious thing. And we need to consider this text and examine ourselves and see if we are in faith, as the Apostle Paul tells us so. 
And let me ask you this question as we develop the exposition of the text. How can we, deli- how can we be delivered from spiritual slavery? And when I was meditating upon this text, it came to my mind that the church, the people of God, after being rescued from Egypt, can still fall into slavery again. Again. And that's what you see here. You see the slavery in the church, verses 7 and 8. And then you see the Savior of the church, verses 9 through 11. The slavery in the church and the Savior of the church. Let's see first then the slavery in the church, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord. They forgot what God did for them, rescuing them, delivering them from Pharaoh and Egypt. By sheer grace, they didn't do anything. God did everything and saved them. He made a covenant with them and loved them. But they had amnesia. They forgot about it. And then the text says that they served. How did they forget about God? By serving the Baals and Ashroth. And I want you to pay attention to the word to serve, the verb to serve. And here, to serve means to worship. It is one of the meanings. But it's also the meaning of to serve as slaves. Both things. It's to serve as worship. But also the verb means to serve as slaves. They were spiritual slaves of idols. Do you see there? It's very clear in the text. In their hearts, right inside of their hearts, they were serving false gods all the while saying that they were the people of Jehovah. But they were slaves of false gods at the same time in their hearts. And both idols, they were male and female. Baal, male. Ashroth, female. And in the pagan culture at that time, they believed that after the idols' intercourse, the semen of the male god would come to earth as rain and would fertilize the soil and so would give to the idolaters an abundant harvest. In other words, if I serve those idols, I would have financial results. Riches, money. And that is why they got hooked 
and shackled to false gods. Believe me, this is not different today. And as a result, in verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled. You see? In verse 8 it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And what did God do? See the language of slavery again. God sold them to Cushan Rizatim, king of Mesopotamia, for eight years. See the language of slavery there again? God selling his own people as slaves. God sold the spiritual slaves to the king of Mesopotamia. And then the text says that Israel, now pay attention to the verb, serve again, served Kushan Rizataim for eight years. You see there again, verse 8? Do you see? Now this is on purpose that the writer is doing for us. He's saying that uh, in verse 8, the same verb is used as he used in verse 7, to serve. They served the false gods and then they served the king of Mesopotamia. You see the relation there? You cannot miss this truth when you see the repetition of both instances of the verb serve. They spiritually served the idols, and then as a result, God got angry with them and sold them as slaves to the king of Mesopotamia, and they socially, politically, economically served a man. It's on purpose there. Here's the principle that you children, you young people, and all of us should pay attention to this. God is showing his, to His people that what was inside of them, what was in their hearts, is what they are seeing now outside of them. He is saying this, as you are spiritual slaves to idols, then God says, in my anger, I will show you externally what is inside of you with physical, political, economical, economic, and social slavery. What you have inside is what you receive outside of you. Why? Because by God's gracious anger, His gracious anger, God shows externally what is inside our hearts. And that's an application by itself. And we can ask slaves today? Not today, not anymore. Long time ago. 
It was abolished. No slaves today. Well, in the world there is. And we can talk about so many ways that even in our culture, there is still slavery. But I want to talk about a kind of slavery that is even worse. And now is I'm going to use an illustration, an analogy, and also an application for all of us to examine ourselves, okay? That's the part where we let the Word of God sink in, in, in our hearts. What kind of slavery is that I'm talking about here? Voluntary slavery. Let me say that again. Voluntary slavery. That by our own desires, longings, and wants, we fall into slavery. It's just like we put our hands in the cuffs by our own desires. It's just like a fish who's trying to eat the bait and the hook comes, grabs the fish and he tries to set his, himself or itself free but it's too late. But he did it or it did it willingly. And I cannot think in another example of this truth for all of us human beings, except addiction. Addiction. A doctor person, I believe, is the prophet of our society and all of us in some sense. I'm called prophet because in the Old Testament, like Hosea and Isaiah, they played out the condition of the people and of society of Israel. Isaiah walked out naked as a play for all of them to see their own condition. Hosea got married with a prostitute to play out the reality of God's people betraying God. And I believe the addicted person, not a prophet, not a saint, but he is an external reality of what we have inside. And many times we don't externalize it, but they do for us. They are like a mirror of who we are inside. Slave to idols and sinful desires that we can see the ugliness in another person just like us. They would act out the spiritual reality of God's people many times. Let me go further with this. The addicted person externalizes what is inside of our hearts. They are the modern external slaves. They are the modern external slaves. 
in mirror of eternal and spiritual slavery of our society. And two things characterize the addicted person or the alcoholic. First, he or she simplifies the complexity of life in one go or end. Everything is linked to alcohol, to the idol of his heart. That's why it's so addictive. The complexity of life He simplifies it with one thing. And for this, let me read. I got this from a book called Addiction and Virtue by Kent Dennington. And uh, I worked with uh, addicted people back in my homeland. And every time I read this person, they said, that's exactly me. That's my life. That's a, that's a perfect summary. And I want you to listen to it. It really is the case of the alcoholic that the, God, that the good times are vacuous or empty without alcohol. That the hard times are unbearable without alcohol. That loneliness doesn't feel lonely with alcohol. That love and relationship are mediated by alcohol. That success can only be celebrated with alcohol. That only alcohol can insulate from rejection and so on. To be an alcoholic is to enter into such a relationship with alcohol that everything else in life makes sense only if it is followed by alcohol. You see, all his life is centered around that substance. Everything that he does or think or do, that's the first point. There's more. It is an endless longing for infinity. That's another characteristic of the alcoholic or addicted person. It's a longing, a strong desire, a passion for the infinity. It's a long for a perfect happiness. It's a longing for a perfect joy. It's a longing for perfect perfection and infinity. Let me give you just two quotes from the AA group. They say this, before AA, we were trying to drink God out of the bottle. Not that I'm in favor of AA, just a quote. Another one, addictions are acts of violence against our insignificance. And as a result, you see the destructive behavior of the person. More substance, less pleasure. Less pleasure, more of the substance. And then the cycle does not have any end. And it's suicide. The more he has, the less the kick he has it. And the more the substance, he must have it. 
And then he is slowly but surely hooked and enslaved to his own substance. And it's suicide. There is isolation, lying, blame shifting. It is all the other problems. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Denial, I can't handle it. It's not that bad. I have, I know I have that problem. I can handle it. Now, when you hear this, probably you're thinking about someone else. A neighbor, a relative, a parent. But I want you to think about yourself. And I have to think about myself. The slavery in the church. And examine ourselves. Because I can say, or you can say, I? Me? With this problem? I am far away from this. Far away. I don't have any of this problem. And let me read then a quote here. How can we apply this truth of slavery? That we can still be struggling with it. It's a quote from a well-known novelist who died of suicide. He killed himself. He wasn't even a Christian. But in a commencement in front of many students, college, college students, he said this. And I think is, he's right on. Spot on. And I, th- I think a good x-ray of our own spiritual lives many times. He says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, in young life as well, there's no such thing as atheism that God doesn't exist. There's no such a thing. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Or slave you. If you worship money and things, if they are where will if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. 
The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without even being fully aware that that that's what you are doing. Now be honest with you. I should be honest with me. Isn't it what the text says? The slavery there is worship. Worship, worshiping false gods. And the tricky thing is, all that the David Forster Wallace said are not bad things. Power, money, sex. They are good things. Good gifts. But they turn out to be bad things because they become gods to us, supreme to us, that makes life sense. What is it in your life? What void are you trying to fill? What do you serve? With what do you simplify your life? What is the thing that not only you become sad when you lose it, but you want to terminate your life if you lose it? What, what would that be? Not only you become angry when your idol is threatened or lost, but you become bitter and lose your mind because of anger. What would that be? As Rebecca Peepard, in one of her books said, whatever controls you is our Lord. Excuse me. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And what is it? that competes with the one you profess to believe. Do you see yourself? Can you see at least a little bit of slavery, of struggle there? Can you examine yourself? Or are you like uh, the addicted person who blames others and denies his or her problems? To what sin do you serve? Let me touch you one, one or two specific problems that might help you. Do you use this? Young people? How is your handling this? How do you handle sexual desires and porn? How's it going? What about another one? 
Harbor of Tongues. Can you handle it? Was it easy? And we all constantly fall into slandering others, gossiping. You see, the addicted person is the uh, horrible part of that addiction inside. Socially, is unbearable. But there are other problems that social is not that bad. And we cope with it. We got used to it. And then we are fine. But they are the same problem. How about food? Is food your problem? You cannot keep your mouth shut and you will die just like a fish trying to eat food? Oh, we can go on and on, right? But you get the point. It is unbelievable the problem that we have even in our midst and in the church. And the people here served eight years, tiring, exhausting eight years of slavery. How can they bear their debt? Well, then we see the last point. The Savior, the Savior of the church. And then we will end. And I think that's the most important part of the passage. And one thing is for you to understand your problem or my problem in our fight against sin and the power of sin and of its slavery. But that's not enough. To know the diagnosis and the problem will not solve your problem. See? You know, the problem of depravity of man, the depravity of sin, we all know about that because we are reformed people. We have to begin there. We have to know that if we don't have that in mind, if we are not aware of the problem, we'll never do anything. But that's not sufficient and enough. We need to see the gospel. We need the gospel every day of our lives. And sometimes you, young people, maybe you're just coming to church and don't realize the need that you have right now. And that's what we have here in verses 9 through 11, the Savior of the church. Who is the Savior here in the passage? You would say, that's Othniel. Of course. Of course, it's Othniel. God raised him, and then he judged and saved all of them and delivered them. But I want you to think otherwise. Othniel is just a, a type of something bigger. Here, what you have is a triune God at work, even in the Old Testament. If we let the light of the New Testament to be shed here, we'll see more clearly. Is the Trinity behind everything? 
You see? The first thing is you see God the Father, if we can say that. God does everything. He's behind everything. It's amazing how the narrative is written. It's for you to pick up the truth that we confess. That He is doing everything behind the scene. God puts them into slavery. It was God who sold them into slavery. Physical slavery. And Israel cried out to the Lord and God raises a liberator called Othniel to rescue them. And then the Lord gives King Cush, uh, king of Mesopotamia, into the hands of Othniel. It's everything God doing. By His anger, His loving anger, His gracious anger, His merciful anger. You see how great our God is, not just angry God. It's not just a loving God. He is both. And He uses both for His own end. And to show, and to show His love by rescuing His people. Not of a social, political, economic slavery. Merely that. No. It's for to rescue spiritually their condition so that they can have their spiritual sanity back to them. You see, the passage is telling us that God is the center of Israel. God is right there, smashed in the center of their life. That's the doctrine. That's the teaching behind it. You see? He is the center, nothing else. He is the main purpose. He is the main character. He is the main object. He is everything behind everything. Because that's reality. That's the truth, church. That's reality, Christian. And that's one of the antidotes against our addiction. You know, when I see an alcoholic, the guy who can simplify life on one thing, It made me think about Apostle Paul saying, pray without ceasing. Because if a wicked man, if a sinful man is able to pray without ceasing for alcohol, because that's what he's doing. He's doing all the time. When we're talking with him, when we go to a feast, when he's go shopping, everything that he does, even taking a shower, he's thinking about the object of his love. If that person is able to do with a created thing, imagine with the one who created everything. That is why it's possible to do such a thing. I don't know if you remember when you were younger and you were uh, dating or trying to, to date someone and you fall in love, fell in love. Everything that you did was thinking about that person, wasn't it? That's exactly what we have here. And then let me just quote again that guy when he put alcohol on everything. And let's change the word alcohol for God. And instead of alcoholic, we put Christian. And you will know how that makes sense and how to use the doctrine of sovereignty of God as an antidote 
for the slavery in our hearts. But to have power to fight against idols in our hearts. Listen. It's the same quote, just changing the words for Christian and God. It really is the case for the Christian that the good times are empty without God. That the hard times are unbearable without God. That loneliness doesn't feel lonely with God. That love and relationship are mediated by God. That success can only be celebrated, that's what we're doing here, with God. That only God can insulate from rejection and so on. To be a Christian is to enter into such a relationship with God that everything else in in life makes sense only if it is followed by your God. That's your God. That's my God. And that's a reality that we see here in Scripture. It's not a dry doctrine. It is a flesh and bone doctrine that we should inject in the vein of our spiritual life and live it out day by day knowing that He is the center of my life. He is the God that I cannot live without. He is everything to me. It is only with Him that life makes sense. And at using the language of alcohol, I should say, everything should be enjoyed with moderation. Only God must be enjoyed with no moderation. That's your God the Father. That's the reality that you have, Christian. And that's the antidote that we should preach to ourselves every day of our lives. It's not my family. It's not my job. It's not my career. It's not acceptance. It's not pleasure. It's not those things that the center of my life. The center of my life, myself. And I speak to myself. It is my Father who lives in heaven. Who is in heaven. But then the text says, Othniel came and delivered them. The word Othniel is... The the meaning is Lion of God. He is the Lion of God. And see, his battle is Israel's battle. His victory is Israel's victory. He He represents Israel. His victory is the victory of all the people. But then he died in verse 11. And I think this is pointing to the one who represents us, all of us who is truly the Lion of God, the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. He is the greater Otaniel. He died by rose again. Otaniel shed blood of his enemies while Jesus shed his own blood for his enemies, for you. Otaniel destroyed the political slavery by subjugating the defeated enemy, but Jesus destroyed our spiritual slavery by serving and being servant on a cross for his enemies. And here's the point. Why Jesus is so great for us? Because the apex of our spiritually, spiritual idolatry 
itself. Self is the apex and the climax of all idolatry. You worship yourself. Selfishness is the basis of everything. How can you escape from yourself? How? Tell me, how? By doing good works? By being more religious? By doing more stuff? Praying harder? Evangelizing? Preaching? Doing ministry? No, that would be more fuel, more gas to explode your heart filled with yourself. That's not salvation. And you start to believe and understand that all other religions, all other saviors, all other idols, all other gods, all of them, all other religions, Judaism, Islamism, all other philosophy, Marxism, or any other way to think, all are based on good works. If you do something, if you don't do something, if you worship your career, if you worship your family, if you worship your children, if you, if you worship yourself, then you will get to heaven. It's all about good works. If you perform, if you do something, but that will only lead you more selfishness, pride, and despair. Only in Jesus Christ, young people, only in Jesus, that to this morning you have the good news that is by sheer grace. Just like Othniel did everything and his victory was the victory of the people, Jesus Christ He lived a life that you could not live, right? He performed and obeyed the law completely without sin and received the curse that you deserved of your own self, of your own selfishness on that cross and purchased our forgiveness so so that we can have God and do not have ourselves Avoiding us to have our God to worship Him. It is only in Jesus Christ of the gospel of sheer grace that He did everything for us that we can escape from ourselves and from our selfishness and from our pride and give all the glory, all the honor, all the worship to the one who is worthy of it. Only Jesus. Only in the gospel. That's why he is our rescuer. Now, this morning is for you. Do you believe it? Do you preach this truth every day to you? Let me end with this. Because this is a third person, right? Because I preached that truth to so many addicted persons, people. And they said to me, I understand what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. It is our problem. It's selfishness. It's ourselves. That's our slavery. It's right there. But I cannot do it. I try to believe what you just said. I try to believe in that gospel. But I come back that I have to do something. I have to. And it's always like a dead end. 
And then we need the third person. And it's right there in the text. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. It is the same thing that we see in the Gospel. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Christ Jesus. Before his battle against Satan, the Spirit descended upon our Lord Jesus. And the Spirit was with Jesus with his entire life. And did everything for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He died through the Spirit. He rose again because of the Spirit. And now he gave us his own Spirit so that he can. Now is the text of Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17 to open up the eyes of our hearts. And Paul is talking to Christians there. So that we may see the call, the hope of our calling. So that we may see the inheritance, the glory of the inheritance that we have with the saints. And so that we may see the power that we have in Jesus Christ. The same power that rose him from the dead. And the same power that put him at the right hand of God the Father. It put all enemies under his feet. We need the Spirit, young people. So you are hearing this, but your idol doesn't let you to see the glory of your Jesus. You are so caught up in the daily lives, the, the things of the daily lives of this world, that we don't have the eyes open to see the glory, the amazing truth of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Probably you were born in a Christian family and you are so accustomed, used to it, and you take for granted the greatness, the amazing truth of the gospel that you just heard. That the only truth that can set you free and keep you free in freedom, Christian. Don't forget about the gospel. It's not something that you go further or deeper in all the things and religious things, No. There's nothing more deeper than the gospel. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill our minds, to fill our hearts, just like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, remember? Don't be drunk with wine. But what? But be filled, just like Othniel was. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you will worship. And then you will be, you'll be thankful. And then you worship God. Like I preached here a couple of days ago, weeks ago. With the feeling of the Holy Spirit, you worship God with your marriage, with your children, and with your work. And you will go to war with the Holy Spirit. To praise your Lord. And your warfare mainly will be in your heart. Daily. With the armor of God. Remembering the truth of the gospel. May God help us all. And examine ourselves. And ask for God the Father to be the center of our lives. So that we can remember the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That if by sheer grace, that we can be saved from ourselves. And the only one that can open our eyes to do this is the Holy Spirit.
Ghost. Let us pray. Our Father, what an amazing God you are. Triune rescuer. Oh Lord, for those who are truly believers here, that they are not slaves to sin, now they have the ability to fight back, to fight against the power of sin. Oh, that maybe have their eyes more open to the glories of the gospel. So that they may see your glory, Father, in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. But to those who do not yet believe, I pray that this morning could be the beginning of it. The awakening of it. The revival of it. Please help this church, help me, and help us all as Christians so that we may truly live the Christian life for the purpose to which you saved us, which is your glory. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.